0: producer Rob stepping in for Rex today while he is out this week. Today we have a collection of the interviews from the guys behind our great sponsors. Take a listen to a couple of the great interviews Fast Brackets Nation has done in the past 50 episodes. Rex will be back next week but until then enjoy the conversations with Ed Harney of DragRaceLawyer.com, Luke Bogacki of ThisIsBracketRacing.com and Gary Varney of GetX.net. We get you started with Ed Harney of lawyer.com.
1: Oh, let's get out of the groove here just a little bit. Um, next um, on the show, he is an accomplished bracket racer. He is an accomplished teacher of the bracket racing game. He is the senior partner at Hume Smith, Geddes Green and Simmons LLP. He is the Drag Race Lawyer. Ed Harney, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Rex. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, um, again, thanks so much for coming. Um, Why don't... There There are very few, I would say, and you might know the exact number, but I would say there are very few drag racers who are also attorneys. So tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how you become a drag race lawyer.
2: Um, Well, I grew up... my, My dad got me into racing, into drag racing. He... Um, started racing, uh, uh, enduro racing, uh, hundred mile uh, raced, uh, built and raced a '53 uh, Willys, um, junkyard motor, junkyard '53 Willys, uh, built in the uh, you know the garage in the back of our uh, uh, you know little quarter acre postal stamp lot that we grew up in. Um, the only way my dad was going to race is if he built it himself. You know we didn't have the money uh, to, to, you know, have, uh, anybody do it for him. So, uh, my dad was a flat out mechanical genius, could do anything, um, with his hands. And, um, so that's how he got into it. Um, was really, really successful in that until, uh, uh folks started pulling up in, uh, uh, you know, renegades and, and, and we were flat towing our 53 willies to the, to the shows. And, uh, so he decided that uh, we couldn't compete there. So he started doing a four-wheel drive enduro, or a four-wheel drive short uh, obstacle course stuff, sand drag racing, things like that. So we we kind of focused there, um, and so that's originally where I first started drag racing was um, with the sand drag racing. Right. So, um, which I really thought was kind of stupid, uh, the whole drag <laughs> racing thing, because you know it was uh, you just drove in a straight line. How hard could it be? Exactly. Um, I, we, we had really gotten out of the obstacle course, and we had a dedicated CJ2A straight line drag racer. Right. And, uh, you know, I thought, God, this got to be pretty easy. <laughs> and uh, I think I was maybe 19, and my dad let me get in a car at uh, Silver Lake uh, Sand Dragway up in Silver Lake, Michigan uh, for the first time. And I got in it and I uh, thought it would be really easy, and I think I probably drove – 140 yards in the 100 yards uh, strip and uh, screwed pretty much everything up and realized there was a little bit more to drag racing than i thought there was and uh, um, i was hooked i mean that was it so uh, dad came home from the shop i think the next week and said uh, hey let's go uh, let's go start building another car and so that was it we uh, built a, or he built let's right. be clear right. uh you know maybe i would sweep the floor but um, built, a uh, he built a Jeep funny car, two by three box tubing that we, uh, we ran, uh, successfully in the sand, uh, kind of a class to cubic or cubic inch of weight class, like comp eliminator. Okay. Uh, which was awesome. We ran a, uh, 250 inline Chevy, um, kind of the Ambrose car in comp eliminator was, they were our heroes. Sure. Um, and, uh, we always wanted to do that, but then we found out what comp eliminator cost to run. So mm. that went away. Yeah. And uh, then we got, uh, my dad wanted to build one more car, and uh, so for Christmas, uh, this was after I became a lawyer and actually, you know, had a paycheck, Um, uh, I bought him a uh, TIG welder for Christmas, and uh, he'd never TIG welded before, and uh, he taught himself to TIG weld, and he built the car that I, I say I drive, but since the kids have driven with their juniors the last five years, that car's sitting ready to go down the strip as soon as I get it back out
1: right and um yeah you've you have sacrificed a little bit here recently but at at um several years ago i mean you had some nice wins and well at the time when five thousand dollars was a lot of money for a bracket racing win you had some really nice wins in that car and tell us a little bit more about the car because i know your dad built it you you said but it's a little unique even for an altered
2: yeah it is we um we, we, he built it in 1995. Like I said, we bought the TIG welder. He wanted to do a chrome car. So we bought a, a Mark Williams funny car blueprint. Actually, the old paper blueprints, you know, this was pre-internet. So we had to mail off or call, you know, on the phone to get them. And uh, he got the blueprints. Um, you know, I remember having in the shop and, and and we built a chassis jig and uh, he set to working with, you know, the uh, the, the chromoly tubing. Because we were running an inline six-cylinder at the time, he made it six inches longer. So instead of it being a 125-inch wheelbase funny car, it's actually a 131-inch wheelbase funny car, uh, which ended up being great because we didn't have to have uh, front brakes in the class we happened to be running because it's officially a Dragster because it's over 125-inch wheelbase. So I have a Dragster license uh, as opposed to a uh, a 125-inch and smaller. But because of the six-inch longer uh, motor yep. with the inline. It was, uh, uh, that's what it was. So we ran the inline six cylinder in 96 in that car in the sand. So that car has been in the sand. Okay. All right. And, uh, we won in 1996, the first year we brought that car out. Um, uh, I won the overall points championship in the American sand racing organization, uh, uh, which was kind of a, it was a bracket racing organization in the sand. Okay. And, uh, so after we did that, it was like, hey, it's time to go run asphalt, so.
1: So did you have paddles on the slicks then at that time? Is absolutely. That yeah. yeah,
2: okay. Yep,
1: yep. So at some point you said the paddles come off, uh, the big tires come on, and let's see how fast we can go.
2: Yep, yep. So we just, that's all we did. Um, we went to Bunker Hill Drag Strip um, and uh, showed up. Um, people kind of laughed. We had, you know, the Zoomy headers on it um, that, you know, were, again, just built by my dad. Um, you know, kind of, uh, folks kind of said it, you know, it was kind of like a leaf blower, um, cause you know, he started up and <laughs> blow all the leaves to the side of the, <laughs> side of the staging lanes. And, uh, yeah, I got my, uh, um, license at, uh, um, Bunker Hill, actually yeah. Art Reed met That's him right. there and, and nope. he was one of the ones signed my license there for that. And, uh,
1: for those of you guys that, um, are outside of the state of Indiana, Bunker Hill is the oldest drag strip in the state of Indiana. And, yep, uh, historic uh, here in Central Indiana.
2: Yeah, it used to be a quarter mile drag strip back in the day, and then cars got a little bit faster, so then it became a you know eighth mile strip. So
1: yep, no, that's uh, that's great, but it, it's not it's not got the straight six in it now. What do, what uh, what do you got in it now?
2: Yeah, so so it's got a five sixty five big block in it. Um, my my mom passed in ninety eight, and uh, you know dad was pretty despondent and uh, needed something to do, um, so our original plan after we decided we couldn't do the, uh, uh, Steve Ambrose Eliminator six cylinder, um, we were gonna, we were gonna make a blown inline. Um, and so we mocked it all up. We, we figured all the parts and everything. And, and we thought we're going to have about 20 grand to maybe make seven, 750 horse. And so I called my dad one day and I said, dad, why don't we just do a big block? You know, let's, let's, you know, ditch the inline and, uh oh my dad would want me to make a shameless plug the inline and the trans is still sitting in the garage if anyone would like to buy it <laughs> there you yeah, go. it's still there there you go <laughs> but uh, yeah so we went to the big block and uh um yeah that's where we've been since
1: yeah the old cubic inches versus cubic dollars exactly right? and uh yeah okay so um so you you bracket race that and i know you went through it here recently and got that all ready but it's kind of sitting a little bit um tell us why that is
2: uh your trailer's uh, full trailer's full about five years ago my uh my son started racing juniors when he was eight uh actually June 30th of uh, 2012 was his birthday his eighth birthday and uh, he was going down the track on his eighth birthday that was before they lowered the age to five six mm-hmm. and then uh, my daughter followed uh two years later um so once I had both kids in the in the uh in the juniors it was a little too tough for dad to run three cars so sure. But uh, last year, uh, bought a stacker um, from, uh, from uh, Antron Brown, and uh, so the plan is, now that the kids have gotten a little older, right. to uh, try to get all three cars out and see if dad can get to, get to make a few passes.
1: Yeah, well, your oldest son is getting to the point where he can help a little bit now and to kind of run his own uh, for the most part. And so, uh, yeah, that'll, that should be a lot of fun for you, uh, hopefully this summer, um, if not shortly thereafter. Um, but in both of those kids, I'll just tell you, Ed may not say it, but both those kids have, uh, have had, uh, highly successful careers already in their young, young drag racing career. So, and I, that has a lot to do with, uh, the education that they get from the old man. So, uh, congrats on that. Um, but stepping aside now, so you got to pay for all this stuff. So, um, talk us through your legal career. Um, you're from Northwest Indiana originally. So, uh start from there and, and walk us through that.
2: Uh, it, that's really short because, um, I graduated in 93. Um, actually, uh, had a position, uh, with the Cook County Public Defender's Office, um, that I thought I was going to go to out of, uh, law school. Um, got a call in about March, April of that year. Uh, and they said, Hey, still got a position, um, but we just don't have the money to pay you. Um, and Whoops. yeah, so I, yeah, I, I was kind of looking for a job. So um, my, um, one of my professors, boyfriend's ex-sister-in-law worked at the firm that is next door to where we are in the MS studio here where we're doing the broadcast yeah. or the podcast and hooked me up with this firm that I'm with now, 25 years later. Yeah. So, so
1: your office looks downtown and right into the Monument Circle in downtown Indianapolis, which is right next to where we record our show and um, you've been there 25 years. Came right? in
2: 93 and, and was really, really fortunate to be with just a fantastic group of guys and and probably, uh, you know, incredibly rare to be at the same place, you know, for such a long time. So don't plan on going anywhere else and uh, uh, been really fortunate to be there.
1: Yeah, and I understand that you're, you have a lot of different avenues of law that you practice, but is there any uh, area that you really focus in on?
2: Yeah, so um, our firm's been uh, together, continuing since uh, 1952. Um, our primary focus is litigation, uh, civil litigation. We don't do any real criminal work unless it's a, a business client whose son gets in trouble or something <laughs> like that. Um, but but any type of uh, civil litigation, whether it's injury work or uh, business contract type work, um, is what our firm does. We're a relatively small, fir- mid-sized firm for Indiana, Indianapolis rather, about 16 lawyers. Um, and then about uh, a quarter of my practice is small business uh, formation um, uh, advice, counseling, those types of things. That oftentimes is using my litigation background and seeing all the things where people get tripped and tracked and 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 have problems to help them kind of stay out of those uh, uh, predicaments. So um, I like the entrepreneurial aspect of those folks that are doing those things. So I can I can help with those things.
1: Hey. And I can speak from uh, my side of the table, which is I work with high net worth individuals every day, both who have businesses and just have their private wealth in. And having someone like you in their corner giving advice, sometimes not, I mean, the proactive is what you pay for in, in something like uh, having you on their side as opposed to the reactive. And, and that can be extremely valuable just in saving time, energy, and and uh, frustration
2: yeah. And, and, you know, I've been really, really fortunate. I have a lot of work. Um, I've had great group of clients that I've worked with, you know, I never have a day that I have to go in the office and say, you know, Hey, who am I going to build today? Um, <laughs> right. So, so, um, you know, maybe we work with folks and, 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 and try to give them the advice that I think is best for them, whether they want to hear it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, for those folks that don't want to take my advice, I usually just tell them, you know, if you don't want to listen to me, I'm not sure why you're paying me. Go find somebody that, (laughs) you know, tells you what you want to hear, Um, you know, and and, and hopefully, you know, you bring some value to them. And and, uh, otherwise, I'm not sure why they're paying you.
1: That's exactly right. Well, um, you've been racing for a long time. Obviously, um, you are the drag race lawyer. So when you're out, when you're at the track or, you know, when people who know you and like you and trust you, When they're calling you what's the number one question you're getting from drag racers specifically
2: i'm not sure if there's a number one question but they're because a lot of times it's just little things you know and and i always try to tell folks that it may not be something i do but feel free to call me you know because i can usually give them some general information that might allow them to solve their issue or solve their problem or if i can't i can hook them with somebody somebody that i trust that can help them with their problem uh, and then even if it's somebody that can help them with a problem, I'm happy uh, to, to kind of make sure things are going well if, if, if they have to continue to work with things. But, you know, the the individual drag racing things um, that, that seem to come up, you know, are, uh, you know, the big one is the, you know, how, how, how the over length limits and the, oh, right. you know, those kind of problems, um, which... Just there is no easy solution on those kind of things. Um, I wish I could just, you know, kind of send an email that says, here's what you can do in (laughs) all 50 states and you won't have a problem. But, you know, that's just not something that's there.
1: And the reason is because every state does their own thing, correct?
2: Yeah. I mean, we just have to remember, you know, we're a republic of 50 states. So every single state gets to decide how they're going to handle their roads Except they can't do something that the federal government has preempted. So yep. Yep. you know, Indiana. Uh, last time I checked, I think we were sixty-five feet for over length, mm-hmm. uh, which ninety-eight percent. No, not you know, lots of people are over length. You got a motorhome and a trailer, and
1: it doesn't take much to get over six no. feet. No,
2: and obviously. I think North Carolina was like eighty-five or ninety, right? Because you know, big motorsports. Uh, a hub with north carolina so they've got a friendly legislature that allows that to be that so
1: yeah and given the fact that a lot of us are over length and there's no clear laws um in terms of that and we're all traveling across country because uh, the series we run are you know usually out of state um what's the best advice you can give to someone let's say they do get pulled over
2: yeah I, you know like most times when you get pulled over you know don't be a jerk
1: <laughs> right
2: right I mean, that's number one i mean if if you know these guys are doing their jobs um mm-hmm. you know when you're getting pulled over and and they may not even be pulling you over for over length but you know when they've when they have pulled you over either either they are and maybe they've already decided that that's what they're doing i mean it's happened before mm-hmm. um you know, i remember several years ago when the Jags folks got pulled over from Michigan. Right. I think that was more of a, um, a DOT kind of, uh, for business. So they wanted them to have log books and, uh, motor carrier stuff. And it was, a you know, when they were bracket racing, right. you know, that was the issue there as opposed to over length, right? you know, but, you know, it seemed like they were, you know, kind of waiting for them. Um, but, you know, so the the die was already cast. They were gonna probably get their tickets.
1: <laughs> that's right, right. They were they they were sending a message that weekend, one way or the other.
2: Sounded right. like they were, but yeah. but you know, if if that's not the case, just again, you know, be nice, answer the questions, be truthful. Yeah. Um, you know, and then hopefully you get a warning. Um, right. but you know, they can impound your rig and require somebody to have a CDL and come get it and if that's what it is that's what it is we all kind of take uh that risk every time we're on the road unfortunately
1: yeah no that's uh true and then i'm guessing this kind of goes along with it in terms of our rigs do you get questions about how to incorporate your racing operation and and make it the most tax beneficial
2: yeah most certainly um a couple things on that um even if you're not looking to make your racing uh, enterprise a business a a a business where you have an intent to generate a profit um you know a for-profit business entity every single hobbyist can deduct uh their their business expenses up to their business or their uh, their uh, race winnings okay so okay. you know if you're a foot brake racer and you know you're pulling with an open trailer and your pickup truck and you're going to the summer door care shootout summer Door car shootout, right. you know, at Luke's race, um, and and you know, you you hit one of the the five granders. Hey, don't be paying taxes on that five grand. Right. Um, you know, you had five grand expenses guaranteed in a year, for sure, most assuredly. <laughs> whether it's you know hotel expenses or meal expenses or you know the truck expenses and the and the parts expenses, you can deduct up to your winnings so that you're not paying taxes on those winnings. That's a you know a hobby uh a deduction yeah
1: you don't have to file a s corp or an lc correct that. correct
2: right. you can't go over that you can't you can't correct. take a loss um, above what you've you've right. claimed but but generally you're going to do that so you know talk to your accountant or heck if you've you know if you've won five grand it's worth you know making a phone call to an accountant to make sure you can do that but sure. but that's that's you know pretty clear and i've i've heard folks say you know hey i won about five thousand and my accountant said i need to pay, you know, taxes on that five grand and, you know, almost just kind of look at them a little incredulously because that's not my understanding.
1: All advice is not equal, I would say. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, and I just think, you know, some accountants are pretty, you know, for the most part, understandably, they're a, a cautious lot and, mm-hmm. you know, certainly you don't want to have audit, but but that's not a, you know, again, you're just doing it based upon what you want. But then for those folks that do, um, you know, intend to make a profit, um, they want to generate income from whatever they're doing, not necessarily just from their winnings, but maybe it's, you know, because they're uh, uh, sure. sponsoring or they're, 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 uh, they've got a business and they're promoting their business mm-hmm. and they're able to show that, you know, by being at the racetrack, uh, you know, they're selling more whatever they're selling. That's right. Uh, you know keep track document those additional sales those types of things you know you can you can you know you can have a loss for several several years and as long as you can show the IRS we've got an intent to make a profit we're you know we're working hard to do that you know that that you shouldn't just be uh, uh, afraid of doing that just keep good records be ready to show the IRS those records and and um, you know that's something you can do
1: yeah. Ed, um, we really appreciate you um, being so supportive of the show itself and coming on today and and talking us through a little bit about your history, helping us understand how you get to be um, both understanding in the legal world and understanding us as racers. We really appreciate it. We wish you the best of luck, you and your kids, this summer um, out on the track. And if you need him, that is Ed Harney at DragRaceLawyer.com.
2: Well, thanks a bunch, Rex, and uh, and thanks for having me.
0: That was Ed Harney of DragRaceLawyer.com. Hey, guys, it's producer Rob filling in for Rex this week. We're playing you some conversations with some of the fabulous sponsors that make the Fast Brackets Nation possible. Let's now hear Rex's conversation with Luke Bogacki of ThisIsBracketRacing.com.
1: Whoa, let's get out of the groove here a little bit. Um, I've got um, just a truly impressive guest for us today, um, man, th- this next guest is a two-time NHRA world champion. He is your 2017 Spring Fling million dollar winner. He's a five-time NHRA division champion. He has 14 national event wins. He is, uh, holds the greatest super comp winning streak in the history of the NHRA. He's the founder of This Is Bracketracing.com. He's a Surefire first ballot sportsman drag racing hall of famer. Welcome to the show, my friend, Luke Bogaki.
3: Thank you for that, Rex. Uh, it's great to be on. I love what you're doing with the show and uh, honored to be here with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, sadly, Luke, um all I have time for today is just go through your accomplishments. So that'll do it for today. Thanks for coming on. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, just a, a, an incredible list of accomplishments and, um, uh, you yeah, know, appreciate you coming on. This is, this is really good stuff. Uh, hey, so I think a lot of our listeners would know kind of your history just from, um, you know, being in the sport, um, reading, but I, I'd like to ask you about, do you remember when you uh, staged the car um, for the final in the Spring Million, which I'm guessing was kind of the largest purse you had done at the time or probably ever have? Um, do you remember that? And take us back, and what, what do you really stood out to you um, about that, b- besides the wind light, obviously?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, in my case, Keep in mind, I started. Obviously, that was the second year of the the Spring Fling Million, and I had been to the first one. Um, but the actually the original Million Dollar Race, I went to my first one in 1999, and I hadn't missed one since. So, for 20 years, I've been thinking about what that's going to feel like. You know, what that right. for kind of preparing myself for that moment. And if we're going to be completely honest, probably assumed it would happen a lot earlier in my career seemed like it was a long time getting there but kind of mentally prepared from that standpoint and when i look back on that that 2017 spring fling million i was just in a really good place mentally because at that time i mean i'm on the heels of four or five really good seasons of racing so Confidence is way up, not only in my ability to execute, but just my equipment, my program in general. You know, I feel like I'm going to have an opportunity to be in that position. And then, too, that was that time in life where I was sort of beginning to transition from that, you know, 40-plus weekends a year on-the-road competition to where I'm at now, more focused on family and still racing, but picking and choosing, I knew that was on the horizon, and it really uh, it kind of forced me to to take inventory and say and this is really cool. I've kind of taken it for granted my entire career to have the opportunity to be here and I remember that whole week in Vegas really making a point of taking it all in, you know like the the scene the backdrop as you stage in Vegas, you're looking at the mountains and the atmosphere of that event and I remember this sounds kind of crazy, but physically taking a moment before I pulled in the water box for the final and thinking to myself, this is freaking awesome. Like (laughs) this is the reason that I race to be in moments like this. Cause win, lose or draw a, obviously the purse has been cut up. Like you're making a lot of money today, which is great. Um, There's still a lot of money on on the line in the final, but regardless, you're going to make a lot, but just the, the thought process that I've wanted to be here my entire career and someday, hopefully I'm going to be sitting on my porch in a rocking chair with my grandkids and tell them about this moment. Like win, lose, or draw. This is pretty awesome. So take a second and just soak it all in. And I think that, like, gratitude and that perspective, looking back at least, really helps me to perform. And who knows? The final is a complete coin flip. Like I get there a thousandth of a second. It could have easily gone either way. But, yeah, when that wind light comes on, like, I still envision it in my head. I clicked the car in neutral. I shut it off, and you could probably hear me screaming at the starting line. It was, it was exhilarating. It was exciting. It was awesome.
1: That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's just uh, goes to show, like, you have to be – all the things have to be clicking, right? Your mental game, the car, all the stuff has to go um, into that. And, yeah, I appreciate you taking us back to that. That's uh, that's really, really cool stuff. And now, of, of course – now on the bracket racing side for whatever i mean it, that's becoming almost commonplace now that to stage up um for that amount of money um and and your your weekly podcast um that focuses on sports sportsman drag racing uh, the sportsman drag racing podcast with luke and jed um talks about that all the time um do you want to give us a kind of a state of the union in terms of these, uh, bracket racing in general, and specifically some of this high dollar bracket racing that's coming around?
3: Sure. Sure. A little, um, little inside baseball behind the scenes here. This is, this is actually perfect primer for me was we're recording this, uh, about six hours prior to recording the sportsman track racing podcast, which I oh, think okay. this will actually be next week's episode, where we really get into like, what does all this mean for the you know, big picture for the, the future of sports and drag racing? And here's kind of my take on it. I just, I think, I see a lot on social media now as to specifically with the, the announcement of these two guaranteed million dollar race, million dollar to win races coming up in 2020, in addition to the original million, in addition to the Springfield million, in addition to all the other SFG races and all these seemingly every, Day you see popping up fifty grand or to win, hundred to win, hundred fifty to win, whatever. Um, but I see a lot of this pushback as to how oh, this is the downfall of our of our sport, and or you see the complete other end of the spectrum. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I'm kind of in the middle. Like I, I kind of want to temper all of that and just say to me, if you, sportsman drag racing in particular bracket racing is not without issues. Like there are obviously issues facing um, what we grew up on, Rex, like the, 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 the niche of our sport that we love. But on that list, the fact that we're going to have two guaranteed million dollar to win races to the extent that that's a problem, it gets way down the list. I look at it as <laughs> right. this is a uh, uh, I look at everything like kind of cause and effect and the, the big prizes are not the cause of the downfall of of sportsman racing or big dollar bracket racing. They're the effect. Because when you think back to it, I thought for years that the purses that we were racing for, and this is absolutely still the case like in the NHRA ranks, the purses that we're racing for are not commensurate to the amount of money tied up in our racing operations. Now I realize like for most of us, this is a hobby. So that's not necessarily the end game, but you just think about like the regular Saturday night bracket racer that in today's world has a a modest operation trailer race car at minimum. It's like a $50,000 operation easily for many it's six figures or, you know, vastly uh, above that. And you just think, like, let's say that you've got a seventy thousand dollar race operation, and to go out on your regular Saturday night, you're going to spend two to three hundred dollars. By the time that you have entry fees, buybacks if necessary, fuel, you know, whatever is involved in your race day, you do all of that to try, if everything goes perfect, to win like a thousand dollars. Doesn't make a lot of sense, right? <laughs> Especially when you realize that it's not really any more difficult in terms of actually winning race to win a 10 grander or a 50 grander or a hundred grander. So uh, as those events started popping up, racers began to migrate to them. I don't think that that speaks as much to the big dollar racing, killing the local Saturday night, as much as like the local Saturday night wasn't really keeping up and racers were looking for something different. Yeah.
4: Um,
3: so where does that, where does it go? I, I don't know. Like, Short-term, I think the million-dollar race that the, that they're putting on in Memphis that the Cummings and Gavin Rawlinson are doing, I think it's going to sell out in, like, 10 minutes. I think <laughs> it's going to be a huge success. I think the SFG million, it's going to be a huge success. I have a hard time thinking that the Spring Sling brand and that the original million will not continue to uh, have huge car counts and be successful in the short-term. I think they're all going to do well. Um, big picture is... What, what does that do for our sport? Because uh, ultimately the issue, in, in my opinion at least, isn't the fact that we're racing for big purses. That's the effect of uh, the, the biggest problem I think facing sports and drag racing, and that is that we have allowed the, the cost of competition, even at the entry level, to escalate to the point that it's not something that the average you know, 20-something would even consider. That's the problem now we're catering to that, you know because the market dictates hey we can we've got these people that have made the investment now let's pay them more money. That's fine and well in the relatively short term, but where does it lead And the only thing that you can compare it to racing wise is I like, think back to the advent of bracket racing, like it started because the the um like super stock classes and what's the class racing got out of hand financially and bracket racing was a way for, um, for us as as racers to spend less money to go have fun. And, And now it is elevated to the point that it's not particularly cost effective to get started. So what's the next thing, you know I mean? There's enough of us at the highest level now to support all of these big races but where does the next generation of racers come from? And I don't know the answer to that. And I don't think there's any way at this point to really turn back the clock and make the rules changes or the, the, the changes necessary to decrease the cost of racing at our level. Like I don't, I don't think that that's something that you can rein back in. Now, what's next? I, I don't know, but I think it's going to take something along those lines. Like the people that came up with bracket racing and said, hey, uh, we can come up with something that's a little bit more cost effective. It's easier to get involved in. It's not necessarily determined by the cubic dollar. Um, like there has to be a, a next wave of that, I think, in order for our sport to continue to grow.
1: Yeah, no that I, I think that point is very well taken. And um, you know, one of the next kind of wave things was just helping the average bracket racer understand the mechanics of um of winning and losing and I, and I don't mean that from a mechanical standpoint i meant from a mathematics standpoint and that was one of the things that um you have kind of set the gold standard with in terms of uh, creating this is bracket racing.com um would would you mind uh tell us a little bit about how that came
3: about no not at all i appreciate that um Funny, like most things in my life that have been successful, I can't really take any credit for it. I completely backed into it. Um, <laughs> I was approached by a really good friend of mine. His name is Blake Allen, racer from Oklahoma, um, back in, like, 2005. Hey, man, you should put on a driving school. And I thought about it, and I was just like, Blake, listen, there is nobody in their right mind that is going to pay good money to listen to me talk about racing. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And we went back and forth on it for six months. Like, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. So ends up, Blake took it upon himself, and he put together a group of 12 racers, and he collected money from all of them. And he said, called me one day, and said, Luke, I've got these guys. I've got their money. All you need to do is show up and put on a school. And that's how our first class went. It was at Mocan Dragway in 2006. And I was still at the time really um, trepid, nervous, uh, uneasy about the whole idea because I thought, man, I, I, keep in mind, I'm 25 years old. I had had some success, but I'm going to be talking to people that have been doing this longer than I have, that have more experience, that undoubtedly have a way of doing things, and they're going to argue with me over how, <laughs> to, you know, like the way that I approach it. And then I got into it and realized that you have a group of people that, home to something like this because not only did they realize that they have an ability to improve they want to improve like that's why they're there so they're super receptive and that those two days changed my life like it was so rewarding and I still remember everyone that was in that class right that first time that we ever did it and um it just changed my outlook on everything because it was so cool to see people literally grow over the course as as a racer over the course of two days and how much they appreciated just a different perspective on things that that spawned into, you know, we hosted probably four or five dozen classes similar to that over the next five to eight years. And ultimately we launched, this is bracket in 2009. basically, just to try to take that idea and kind of scale it to reach people across the country now across the continent without asking the racers to necessarily come to us. And it allows us to help more, more racers, uh, become the best version of themselves, um, you know, logistically. And then from there spawned into, um, uh, Mrs. bracket racing elite, which is, Basically, like I felt like we got a little bit too disconnected, or I got too disconnected. Like We were creating this awesome content on this thisisbracketracing.com, but after years of that, and just kind of uh, rolling it out to whoever was interested, but it was really impersonal. After a few years of that, I was like, man, I really miss working one-on-one with racers. And now our elite community kind of gives the opportunity to bring that aspect back. To it Uh, not only providing the training but also hey the one-on-one this specifically is what you need to work on so that's kind of come full circle and uh and that's where it's at now 10 years into this is bracketracing.com which is kind of crazy
1: yeah that's uh and i remember you probably don't remember but i was at one of your very early uh this is bracket racing trainings at bunker hill uh, drag strip and and a hundred years With, ago, uh, Jason sure. Lynch, right? That's right. Yeah, um, <laughs> man, that guy. Ooh, he's impressive. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, learned a ton that weekend, and I, I just that was when I first realized I have no idea what's going on out there, and um, and and so then after the weekend, I was like, oh, okay, now I kind of get it, and uh, so yeah, opened my eyes quite a bit, and I'm sure that's what. Um, you know a lot of guys are doing now and with that and then also when they get involved with this is bracket racing elite um th- that's its own community in itself right i mean you can have guys that are just focused in on top dragster or top sportsmen and talk about you know how they improve and maybe even from across the country so they're not competing with each other per se
3: Sure. No, it can get really specialized. Like we have a lot to offer just on this is bracketracing.com. You can essentially purchase any of the the trainings that we've ever put together, whether, whether they're video or written. And we have a library of like 350 plus trainings dedicated to basically every aspect of the sport that you could imagine. So you could go in there and just pick and choose and say, I want to learn about this. Um, the difference between what's on this is bracketracing.com and joining the Elite community is that within Elite, you get access to all of that. Number one, that's like part of your membership. So you can pick and choose whatever you want at no additional cost. But the real difference in Elite is community, the community aspect. You're surrounded not only by the instructors, myself, Kevin Brandon, Justin Lamb, all former NHR world champions, but a community of 300 plus racers who are dedicated to improvement, who are um, going through the same things that you're going through, that are struggling with the same things that you're going through, that provide that support, and probably more importantly, that accountability. Um, So when I think about Elite, it's, it's about community, it's about accountability, and it's about access to... Um, people that can help you, in addition to all of the the training material in general. And as you mentioned, we can get really specific with it because now as our community is growing, if you say like, hey, I've got a uh, a pro charger equipped top dragster car and uh, I'm doing this, this, and this. Well, odds are. There's like four or five, at least, other members in the group that have a somewhat similar combination that are, again, because we're all looking to kind of get to the same place and become the best version of ourselves on the racetrack, are really open to sharing, like, well, hey, it, maybe not necessarily this is the way to do it, but I can tell you this don't work. So don't do <laughs> that, right. you know I mean? right. And I think there's a lot of value to that.
1: No question. Yeah, I mean... It goes back to, yeah, things like if you can put it on the dyno, you can save yourself a lot of time before you get to the track and very, very similar stuff with that. Um, no doubt. Yeah, that's that's really good stuff. Well, let me ask you this. Um, roughly, how many passes have you made down a racetrack in your life?
3: Okay, you gave me this as a primer, which was good because I would have been – I'd have had my shoes <laughs> off trying to get a rough idea. The best I can figure – like I started racing a junior dragster when I was 11 and I took a year or two off there when I was 13. I started racing a big car at 14.
4: Okay.
3: Yeah. We won't tell anybody. I, I just <laughs> fell the beans on that. Um, and there have been seasons where I made 900 plus runs. And now today I make 250. That's a really good year. We just don't, we just, have other priorities in life race but I would say it's fair to say that I've averaged 500 laps a year for now I'm 38 so um let's say 26 years so definitely north of 10,000 I would say somewhere in the 12 to 14,000 run range that's a lot of laps man um a lot of laps
1: all right well I ask you that to ask you this then what's what's the fastest pass
3: you've ever made Oh, this isn't close. I, uh, <laughs> we, we did a uh, – we actually put together three cars for a customer. I was actually an Elite member, a friend of mine in California named James Warden, James and his wife Lori. And one of those cars was a Pro Charger equipped Top Dragster setup that um, I wouldn't have even tackled. But Kevin Brandon, my co-instructor within Elite, has some, has some uh, experience there. And the Wardens ended up buying his basically – complete combination from the front of the pro charger to the uh, to the output shaft on the transmission and we dropped it in this car so we got it all running and Kevin made the first couple of runs and then James made a couple runs we were testing at Bowling Green late last season just on a private test day but before we left the track they basically wouldn't let me leave without making a run in the car and I'll be completely honest I didn't have a lot of like it wouldn't be fair to say I didn't have the desire to do it because how often do you get an opportunity to go that fast? That's cool, but it's a Monday test day. Like there's nothing on the line. Like there, you, you, there's an ambulance there and everything like that. Like and I know the car's safe. I put it together, but yeah, what's the what's the really the benefit here other than Oof. just say you did it? But anyway, right. they basically forced me into it, so I do it. And uh, I knew from what Kevin had has run, like, it's going to go really fast. It's going 390s to the 8th. We hadn't made a full quarter-mile run. Um, I wasn't going to be the guy to do that, but we were going to run at 1,000 foot. Okay. And uh, so I'm telling myself, this is all going to go by really fast. Keep in mind, like, I don't think – I ran IHR top dragster for a couple of years, drove one of Bruce thrift cars, I think went 670s at a little under 200, nitrous combination. That was cool. Um, but this thing's way faster than that. So, you know. <laughs> well, so and you've, you've myself, and you've
1: run super comp stuff at, I mean, almost 190 miles an hour, right? And you've done that for a long yeah, time. Yeah, so like you, low
3: 180s, right? Yeah. This, this car is capable of doing that to the eight right? <laughs> right. So, right. I, I tell myself because this is what we tell people on on this is dot and and with any lead, is if the race if the, the the race feels like it's going too quickly, one good tool to kind of break it up. Is physically like tell yourself where you're at on the racetrack and use the the timing increments as, as markers. Like there went the 60 foot, there went the 330. You know, and it just makes you realize you're out there for longer than you than you than you think. So I'm going to do that, right? I'm gonna, the 330 is going to go by, and then it's really fast. So the eighth mile is probably going to fly by, you and then you're going to lift a thousand foot, right? Yeah. So this thing takes off, and it's cool because it doesn't 60 foot any faster than my bracket car. But you feel the boost come in and you feel the timing come in. And next thing you know, things are flying by, right? So I watched the, the 330 go by and I'm like, okay, really focused in on the eighth mile cone. And I kind of watch it come up and go by. I'm like, okay, that, that really wasn't that big a deal. That's cool. And there went 1,000 foot. And like, Holy, that was really fast. <laughs> I was supposed to lift right there. So I ended up, I shut off shortly after 1,000. I went 618 at 199. I still have never been 200, but I'm pretty confident that I was going well over 200 when I clicked the ignition off. Um, But yeah, that is by far, I went more mile per hour to the eighth than I had ever been to the quarter. I want to say it went 191 to the eighth. I've never been 190 prior to that. So pretty wild. That's awesome. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you you telling that story because I don't think everybody truly appreciates how fast uh, these cars are going. And for a guy like yourself that has had so many laps in the car, and then for even you to say, "Hey, that's a fast pass," um, it kind of gives some perspective to our classes. So, uh, appreciate you breaking that down.
3: Um, it's impressive what those guys do, no doubt. <laughs> and, and,
1: and then, you know, on the top end, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's it's really it's it's really really cool stuff. Um, all right, well, hey, listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, bet you dinner here. Um, and I don't even know why I remember this, but do you remember the first thing I ever said to you when we met?
3: I remember the first time that we met, there was like a a swap meet deal that, uh, it was put on by the track at Bunker Hill uh, up there near the track. And I had a little display booth for this is bracket racing. I remember meeting you and Ed and uh, and a bunch of the guys there but I don't know that I remember our first conversation.
1: That's exactly right. That's where it was and I said to you and again I don't know why I remember this specifically but I do remember saying to you Luke I want to like you but you're a Saluki fan, so that's going to be an issue for me. <laughs> for those of you guys that don't know, um, I went to the University of Evansville. I played basketball very poorly there. Um, and that is in the same conference of Luke's Southern Illinois Salukis. And so as much as I love uh, Luke, um, you know, I've, I've got a bone to pick with you about that. Um, okay. and <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, so this this year, um, we're you know, we've got some – duke it out. Our aces and our salukis going at it. You like your squad this year or no?
3: I'll be completely honest. I don't know enough about our squad this year. We've got two kids that I know. We had a coaching change, complete roster turnover. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I have no idea what to expect. You guys got all the transfers that are eligible this year. I think so should be good, right?
1: I think so. Yep, yeah, we've got okay. we've got some good guys coming in. Uh, by all accounts, they um, destroyed the starters from last year. Now that team from last year was not very good. Uh, they finished last in the conference. But uh, yeah, I'm expecting a fourth k- place finish this year, and really excited about my aces again for the first time in a long time
3: well, you should be I think uh, I think we are probably well, I mean you changed coaches a year before we did. I, I think we're probably a year behind you on a similar progression. I think the future's bright, yeah, for both I
1: agree, yeah, um, so that's that's what I have. Um, that's my only issue with you you got anything you got anything oh. from me like you you like me, right
3: i yeah, I love Rex. I, uh, and I'm a big fan of your show and what you're doing. It does the, the, the purple does bother me a little bit. I'm, I, I definitely bleed maroon. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, like I've told you, I think I'm, I'm, I've got to be one of your biggest fans. And I know that this is not something you came up with overnight. We discussed the, the genesis, sort of the basis of what you're trying to do with the Fast Brackets podcast a year ago. So it's really cool. To, uh, to see you proceeding with it and doing such an awesome job. I think you're killing it. The only thing that I will take some exception with, and we've never discussed this. I mean, we're, we're pretty tight. I had no idea you were such, you had such like Roadster hatred. <laughs> what I, I mean, as a guy that, you know, I mean, I, I drove a Corvette Roadster for a few years. I kind of dig the Roadster. I'm just a fan of all things race car. Where is, what is the genesis of this Roadster hate?
1: Oh yeah, yeah no. Uh, we yeah we got to get into this. This is good. Um, so Uh-oh. here here's where I'm at with the roadsters, and um, I'm at the same point with roadsters as I'm um, at the same spot um, with like the four corners in basketball, um, like uh, like walking uh, walking good hitters in baseball and like instant replay in football. Like I get it from a competition standpoint. I get it. I understand you're trying to win. You're doing everything. From a, a viewer's perspective, hate it. Like, I, I think our sport needs every opportunity it can to succeed. And there's there's a reason why soccer is the number one sport in the world, and it's basically because, it, like, the only rule is just kick it. Like, that. I think that's the rule book is kick it, don't use your hands, right? That's kind of the rule book for soccer. Um, and uh, when we get roadsters or half cars, like I like to call them, um, you know, I just, I, I would like them to be convertibles, right? So if you want to drive a convertible, that's fine. Uh, but there, let's put the whole window in there. So that way, if there's anybody that walks through the the gate, they won't go, what the heck is that thing? I've never seen, and the next time Chevrolet, produces a camaro roadster i'm all for it but uh like i think what was the
3: prowlers
1: those, those are roadsters right um i'm cool with those
3: so by that argument like the common spectator walks into the pro stock or pro mod pits and sees some wet dream body contraption and they immediately recognize hey that's an avenger i, I think... mean just because it's got a roof i don't know man i don't know if i follow <laughs> the logic
1: well uh i th- i th- i think it looks like a car though right I, th- I think you and i can have that conversation i'm not uh totally bent on it but it falls in the category of of instant replay at the end of the game where you just go all right let's let's make a call and move on right Like uh, that's that's where it goes the category for me um I know I have I have a very weird world view of things, um, so uh, you know I get it. I knew that coming in. I just <laughs> didn't know the
3: roadster thing. So right. I'm yeah. just a fan. I'm a I'm a fan of race cars. I love all race cars equally.
1: Yeah. And um, it's the
3: year of the buggy. How can you be? How can you hate uh, against the buggy?
1: Yeah, I know you and Luke and or you and Jed have been talking about that. Um, I am happy to stay in our lane here at the fast brackets and get to <laughs> top sportsman, top dragster, no roadsters ever um
2: hey hey,
1: what's next for you like what are you doing next i know you just came off uh byron right what what's next for you
3: uh a couple NHRA events uh we'll go to Juliet. i plan on going to the double divisional in topeka and those are sandwiched around our jegs summer door car shootout can't believe we've been doing that for nine years so we'll have a lot of fun here at i-57 drag strip with that coming up in just uh what a week and a half or so
1: yep i will see you then um hey um how can, how can our listeners check out This Is Bracket Racing if they want to step their game up?
3: Yeah, the easiest thing is just go to the homepage, thisisbracketracing.com. If you want to find out about our uh, premier membership community, This Is Bracket Racing Elite uh, specifically, you can go to is slash elite uh typically our interest in elite has been so immense that we only open the doors to bring in new members a couple of times a year but we do have one of those coming up very shortly i believe it's july the 26th through august the 3rd for that week we'll have open enrollment in this is bracket racing elite so if you've considered joining our uh, premier community and or you want more in- more information about that again that will be available towards the end of the month. You can learn more. This is bracketracing.com slash elite.
1: Thanks so much, man. Thanks for coming on. That was the great Luke Bogacki. If you need him. Thanks, Luke.
0: That was Luke Bogacki of thisisbracketracing.com. Hey, guys, it's producer Rob filling in for Rex this week. We're taking a look back at Rex's conversations with some of the fabulous sponsors that make the Fast Brackets Nation possible. Let's hear Rex's conversation with Gary Varney of GetX.net.
1: Okay, as we hit the mile-per-hour cone, we're going to bring on the owner of GetX Products. Uh, He's a really good drag racer, and he's most recently won the 2020 U.S. Street Nationals 550 Index uh, down in Bradenton. Um, With us now, my friend, Gary Varney. Gary, how are you, man?
4: Good, Rex. How are you?
1: I'm really good. I'm really good. I'm I'm anxious to get back out, but uh, you know, other than that, uh, I'm vertical. I'm healthy, and I think really that's all we can uh, really uh, account for right now.
4: That's the best we can hope for at this point. I'm afraid. Yeah,
1: I think you're right. Now you you um, you got out and did some racing early this year and got a nice win, so you're ahead of the rest of us for the most part.
4: I did. And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, very fortunate to be able to go down there and spend a little time and, um, you know, actually, uh, very fortunate to pull a win off, you know, in, uh, in Florida, a bunch of tough, tough racers down there.
1: Yeah. You got it done. Um, and I know you to be a heck of a racer. Um, and I, I've lined up against you in a final and I didn't like it to be honest with you. Cause I knew, I knew I had to make a flawless run to beat you. Um, and so I know what those guys were all thinking every time they lined up with you this weekend, but uh, or earlier this year, I mean. But uh, take us back. Why don't you take us back and and uh, talk to us a little bit about how uh, this racing habit started for you?
4: Well, it all started uh, actually back in 1972 as a 12, 13 year old boy. Um, the first spring nationals ever held at National Trail Raceway. Uh, and I kept begging my dad to take me, you know, and he he wasn't too interested. And the last minute, he did. Um, uh, we went and watched the finals, uh, the spring nationals at, at, in 1972. Well, that was it was over for me after that. I come home and climb on my dirt bike and try to temp burnouts, you know, and hold the front brake and do these crazy burnouts on it, you know. And uh, um, you know, the the bug was with me for about four years. He wouldn't let me race. He wouldn't let me go down the racetrack even at 16. And uh when I turned eighteen, um in nineteen seventy six I made my first trip down the racetrack.
1: You said, uh, uh, I'm emancipated so off I go.
4: Yep, I was uh it was over. I mean it was uh <laughs> I'm thinking I am hooked on this stuff. I love it, you know. And uh it stayed with me all these years. Um I think this is my what forty fourth year I think of doing this crazy stuff, so
3: yeah,
1: you're doing it at a really high level, too. Um, why don't you tell us, uh, our listeners, a little bit about your car, it's pretty special.
4: Uh, yeah, my car uh, actually uh, was built by a um, Richard Bullings race car down in uh, Maryville, Tennessee. And he built it for uh, Wilson Ford just outside of Atlanta. And it was a Bob Glidden uh, replica, uh, and they used it for a show car. It was a the... Uh, uh, 7-Eleven car, the Chief Auto Part 711 11 car. And, uh, the Thunderbird, right? Yep, yeah, the Thunderbird. eighty six, eighty yep. five 85 Thunderbird. And um, so it sat on Wilson Ford's uh, showroom for a couple of years, and uh, I think Richard Boland actually drove it a, a few times, raced it a few times, and then it went to a um, uh, fellow racer, Brown, out in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, sure. and he ran IHRA Quick Rod with it for a while. And um, i ended up with a car uh eventually i bought it rolling uh the paint was not good on it at the time so we repainted it and um to a different paint scheme and, um we're actually thinking about having it wrapped and going back to the old glidden uh paint scheme uh oh, there it'd you be go cool yeah that'd be a pretty cool deal but uh yep been running it all these years uh 22 years with this car
1: and uh what uh you got a ford power plant in that thing is that right
4: Absolutely. Uh you know me, Rex? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> we uh yeah, it's a 557-inch uh Ford motor in it now with uh Blue Thunderheads heads. Uh and a sheet metal tunnel ram on it, uh, two dominators. Um and it, it's a pretty mild engine. I mean, it's not a a big high maintenance deal, you know, where I got to change valve springs every 20 runs or anything, but um uh it does okay. It, it makes it makes enough power uh for me anyways. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah yeah
1: no it's a it's a really good it's a sharp piece um for a ford Thank uh, you. but uh it's a really sharp piece yeah. and outside of this index stuff that you've run a little bit what other series are you running with it
4: well we ran a uh there was a super 32 series a quick 32 series at national trail it ran for years um and we ran that series i don't know i probably ran that series for uh, 12 years or something like that and uh Never did win the championship I run it up twice and finished third once, um, but never could pull off the uh, the championship for that series. Um, but, um, and unfortunately, that series has gone away. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a quick 16 series now, and they bring in just some crazy fast stuff. But, um, but yeah, we run some of that, um, yeah, do some index stuff at Dragway 42, Okay. Um, you know run some 550 stuff up there but uh used to do a, um and still do some nmra stuff um you know run some of their bracket series that they run but uh i'm getting old i'm slowing down you know <laughs> <laughs> we all are we all yeah. are Gary. But, uh, yeah
1: well it takes um well you've got a you've got a nine to five right you are not uh you, you got to do that every day tell us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis
4: yeah basically um in two thousand eleven i uh, acquired uh getex um and that's pretty much our deal right now um well for the last ten uh, nine ten years now i guess but um we uh we manufacture the dial in window marker and the wheels up wheelie bar marker yep. uh for the wheelie bars and we also do a burnout guard, you know, the guard for the uh, rear quarter panels uh, for a lot of street cars, you know, so the molten rubber just um, just washes off right, uh, off the quarter panels. And we also have a product um, that came from burnout guard, and we call it Nose Guardian, and they use it on the front of um, – like uh, RVs and semis and you know what have you and what it it basically does the same thing as the burnout guard only the bugs just wash off easy.
1: Ah, okay. Um,
4: so um, yeah, it's kind of kind of neat. But um,
1: well, that's good because anything I can do to make my uh, cleaning time you know minimize right. that's what I want. I I yeah. I don't really love uh, trying to get rubber off the quarter panels nor do I like getting bugs off the front of the truck or whatever it might be. So, yeah, that that yeah. Does, that helps the cause. That's what I like.
4: Yeah, it does. Um actually Rick Jones is use, uses it on their uh wheel tubs on the Pro Stockers. Um, oh, okay. They spray it up in the wheel tubs to keep uh, you know, they make the um rubber come off the wheel tubs easier. Gotcha. Um, so they they use it for that also. So, and several uses for it.
1: I think that's um, a big part of uh, trying to, you know, so much of keeping the race car clean is trying to help kind of think about some of those things. And it does whenever you have to work on it. Then it's a little nicer than, uh, you know, jarring a bolt loose and having a bunch of dirt and uh, gum fall on you.
4: you (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's amazing, too. I clean the tubs out in my car here. A while back it was amazing how much weight i got out of it from the right. rubber and the wheel tops. i mean it really builds up under there yeah um so yeah, you know how us uh, disease drag racers are weight conscious so, <laughs> right right know.
1: but uh, and, um well and you mentioned to me um this was offline but you mentioned to me that there's a really specific process and, and you guys spent a lot of time developing the dial-in markers so that it it works on, you know, um, the plexiglass and the Lexan and all that stuff and which is different than the old shoe polish that we used to use just you know, yeah
4: standard. Yeah, it's um it is pretty specialized. Um actually a fellow named Larry Geddes originally owned GetX or developed GetX, um came up with this and uh, you know, back when back when I started with, we used shoe polish on the on the glass and uh, had to come off with a razor blade pretty much, you know. And uh, as race cars evolved and uh, Lexan started coming on the scene or, you know, acrylic um, come on the scene, well, shoe polish didn't work anymore because it would um, just destroy it. So this stuff is specially formulated uh, for Lexan. And um, the biggest problem was, you know, we wanted it or he wanted it at the time to work on Lexan and glass. And um, it would work fine on the Lexan but glass uh not so much and you know it was it kept refining it and got it to work on glass and everything was fine except when you get to like a, I i think it was a 67 nova the side glass in a 67 nova okay was so hard the glass was so hard that the uh, the dial-in would just roll off of it so they had to go back to the drawing board and uh you know, re- refine it even further so it work on all glass. And um, I-, I guess glass is technically a liquid. People don't understand that. Um, but if you you measure the window in a hundred year old house, it'll be a lot thicker to bottom than it is at to the top. The glass will be from where it has slowly ran down over the years. Interesting. And, yeah, it's kind of interesting. And uh, but and some some glass and and some of the especially the older cars was just extremely hard and um you know so all glass is not made the same right (laughs) right uh so yeah it was uh it was quite a process to to refine it enough to where it would work on everything yep and uh we got it down pretty good and uh it it goes on we say it goes on like paint and wipes off like chalk so uh we're pretty proud of that
1: yeah no as well you should be and it um for the the price point it's uh it's a lot cheaper than a, a dial-in board and all the other stuff that in these It
4: is and, it is and you know not everybody wants a dial-in board you know especially somebody in a street car or you know a car that they drive occasionally or something you know and um um you know you don't know, have to mess with the wiring and all the electronics and stuff that goes along with it but um Sure. So yeah we're um at, um you know we're 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 pretty happy with uh with our dial-in products and our wheelie bar marker um you know we have a lot of um a lot of the pro stock teams use our wheelie bar stuff um I think most of coletta 's fuel teams uh use it also um we send quite a bit of it to connie Coletta's t- operations oh okay so um you know they're they're using it too so uh a lot of the pro cars are using it and uh you know we 're pretty proud of that yeah i i
1: understood and as well you should be and then you 've also recently with all this coronavirus stuff come out um, you developed a, a hand sanitizer as well right
4: actually we did um, you know when all this stuff hit um, it, you know everything was crazy I mean um, it was just uh, the biggest problem with hand sanitizer uh, was getting the containers to put it in and oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no it they just didn't exist and you know luckily being in the business the bottling business uh, we had bottles and we had access to bottles and um uh, consequently we were able to pull it off
1: yeah so, like you you wouldn't think that that would be the issue but um when everybody was doing a mad scramble for that stuff bottles were uh high priority and and in uh, high demand right
4: oh it was crazy um you know they uh, uh even today uh sprayers are not available um, and, you know, not that we would do it, but they say you can't even get them out of China right now. Hmm. So that's how bad it is. <laughs> so, interesting. Uh, I mean, all of our stuff is made in the U S but, um, yeah, the sprayers are still not available and they're telling me April or not April, August or September before we might even see some of that stuff. Um, luckily we have enough on hand for our burnout guard products, but, um, for the sprayers, but uh yeah the containers have just been uh just been uh, almost impossible to get and uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to to uh use what we had and you know was able to get a few more from our supplier so uh we did we got into the sanitizer business and um you know to try to help you know combat this crazy stuff and um it's been uh, it's been pretty good we've been we've been uh, happy to you know be able to help
1: well i think i mean it's just it's the new world order, right? We're just all going to have to have that stuff at our disposal and and ready and and just as a protectant. Just like the burnout guard is a protectant, that hand yeah. sanitize, sanitizer stuff is a protectant for us personally and it um it is. We, yeah. We just have to protect I mean we just we have to. I mean, it's uh it's our livelihood, right?
4: Well, it is. It is, you know, and if we're going to open this country back up, um I think we're going to have to to use this stuff and prove to the, the government <laughs> that, right. that we can do this, you know, um, you know, we can protect ourselves and we can use the stuff that's available and, um, you know, try to, try to knock this thing down yep. and, um, hopefully get rid of it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a new world. Uh, unfortunately, um, it, it really is. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be around for a while.
1: I think you're right. Um, I'm just hopeful that, uh, we all can get ourselves a little healthier and kind of figure out how to combat it uh, long-term. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, part of that is using hand sanitizer and, and you know, washing our hands and keeping ourselves right. uh, safe that way.
4: Right, right. i got to tell you, this hand sanitizer gets kind of addicting. Uh, <laughs> the more you use it, the more you think you should, you know. Right. And uh, it, uh, it's kind of interesting the way it works. I mean, I never was, honestly, you know, before all this hit. I was... You know, I wash my hands and do everything you're supposed to do. But, you know, the sanitizer, nah, I don't know. I don't think I need that, you know. And, um, you know, now you think every time you touch something, you got to sanitize your hands, you know, because right. you never know what might have been on it. You know?
1: Yeah, you can so, almost drive yourself crazy.
4: I think, you can. Bit, you you know? can. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's um, – and, of course, you know, our, our government officials are – I think there's a battle, of course, going on there. You know, some 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 of the some of the higher up officials think, well, maybe maybe it's not as bad as we think it is. And then you got the local, the governors, you know, keeping these racetracks shut down, um, which I don't know, just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If you can walk into Lowe's or you know one of the right the, uh, the department stores and you know you're elbow to elbow to people, but um, I just don't think they understand bracket racing as far no. as that goes.
1: No, they clearly don't
4: right no, it, they don't. don't
1: they don't well let me ask you this um mm-hmm. if our listeners they need dial-in markers they need burnout guard they need that the front guard um to keep the rvs and the and the rigs clean going mm-hmm. on the road and or they just need some hand sanitizer and want to support uh a race um, racing manufacturer where's the easiest way for them to find your products
4: um you go to your uh favorite retailer your performance retailer um you know the Jags of Summits. Um, you know those type of people. Um, you know they have it readily available and ready to ship. Um, as far as the um, the sanitizer, it takes them a little while to get it into their system. Um, and if you know if you, if somebody needs sanitizer, they can email us at uh, info at getx.net. They can call us at seven four zero nine one nine zero one three two or look us up on uh, facebook and message us on facebook get x dial in and uh, we can we can certainly take care of anybody's needs as far as the sanitizer goes
1: fantastic yeah um it's it's necessary for all of us i mean we spend so much money um on our cars that we a little bit extra keeps them clean and then you know we got to have it for our bodies um because it is uh I mean, it's the only thing that uh, allows us to do all the other stuff is our health. So we got to right. have it. we just got to have it. There's no doubt.
4: Yep, we, we have to. I mean, if we don't have our health, we're not going to be racing or working or anything else. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've got to we've got to keep ourselves healthy and try to build our immune systems up and, uh, you know, kick this thing to the curb. That's
1: right. Um, speaking of that, let's say we've kicked it. What's your race schedule look like the rest of the year?
4: Actually, I don't know <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get uh we have to get these tracks opened up. Um, you know, we had originally uh, intended on running there was a, they were actually gonna have a Ford race at forty two, um but they canceled oh, it. Um and and of course a lot of stuff's getting canceled. Um so I I'm should, really not sure.
1: I should tell our listeners that um at one point I famously or infamously um told you that you were the only Ford guy that I really liked personally and that you have never let me live that down
4: i never uh, did and i will (laughs) i will never forget when you told me that it was at indianapolis raceway park and uh you had just actually kicked my tail if i remember right pretty bad uh, i don't know about (laughs) that
1: i I think i had a good night
4: and uh, yeah you uh you took my wally (laughs) How's my Wally doing by the way, Ray? Perfect. It
1: is perfect. It's nice and shined up too.
4: Good, good. No, you actually deserved it that night. You really did. It was uh that was uh, just a, a great night and uh you actually deserved that, to win that race by by all counts.
1: Well, I appreciate it, but uh yeah, when, anytime any time you tell me you're going to a Ford event, I have to
4: laugh. I know. Yeah, it was uh I will never forget when you told me that that night and you know I'm thinking you know there's a lot of things I don't remember my name's once you know half of the time I don't remember my name but uh I do remember that very well and uh I just thought it was funny but uh yeah it was uh it's been uh you know one of you're one of my favorite people there's no doubt
1: well, Gary, thanks for coming on, um, talking to us a little bit about GetX. Thank you for uh, helping the show and being a uh, sponsor of the show, and, um, and I, I wish you well the rest of the season. Stay safe, and uh, you know I, I look forward to our paths crossing again here real, real soon.
4: Absolutely. Rex, thank you so much
0: for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: That was Gary Varney and GetX.net if you need them.
0: That was Rex's conversation with Gary Varney of getex.net. Again, guys, it's producer Rob filling in for Rex this week. We spent the show today hearing Rex's conversations with some of the fabulous sponsors that make the Fast Brackets Nation possible. For Rex Simmermaker, who will be back next week, I'm producer Rob. Stay safe out there. You've been listening to the Fast Brackets Podcast.